Esther chapter 5. Now, to one degree or another, every single person in this auditorium has had a little bit of identity confusion, if not gone into a full-blown identity crisis. The questions of who am I and why does my life matter are some of the most significant questions a person could ask. And you might even be now here going, boy, this, I am really actually wrestling with this. Where is my significance and where does it lie? When we've been making our way through the book of Esther, we've encountered a young woman who is going through what you could call perhaps an identity crisis. She has a dual identity. In fact, she has two names. She is Hadassah, her Hebrew name, but she also goes by Esther, her Persian name. She's Hadassah. She's the woman who's a part of God's covenant people. She has all the promises. She is a believer. She knows the living God. But she is a part of an exiled group of people that have amalgamated into the Persian Empire, so much so that her adopted father, Mordecai, says, you know, let's not, let's not go with Habasa. In fact, don't ever tell anybody that you're Jewish. Just fit right in and go with the flow. In fact, your name is, is Esther, Ishtar, named after the goddess of love and war. And so we find a young lady who's got a dual identity. She's conflicted inside. Not exactly sure who she is. Now, to give you a little background, of, if you're just kind of joining us, Esther takes place, the whole book takes place in the Persian Empire, where a guy by the name of Xerxes, that's his Persian name, Ahasuerus is his Hebrew name, he is the absolute world ruler. He is in control of the Persian Empire. It is the largest known empire ever in human history up to this point. Uh, he has been uh, soundly defeated in battle and from the Greeks, and when he comes back, he decides that he needs a new queen because he already deposed of his first queen, Vashti. She wouldn't appear at one of his drunken parties after a six-month party. He wanted her to wear a crown and nothing else. She goes, I don't think so. He deposes her, divorces her. After getting whipped by the Greeks, he comes back and he decides, based upon his advisor's information, that what he needs is just a really good woman to actually make him happy and fulfill all the needs in his life. So he has these harem scouts. They go and they find the most beautiful women in the Persian Empire. They bring them in. These women are now treated as secondary wives. They are now concubines of the king. They each get one night with the king, and the one that he likes the best ends up becoming the queen of the Persian Empire. And lo and behold, this, this girl, this young, perhaps early 20s, teenage girl, Esther, the girl with the dual identity, she is selected. She becomes the queen of the Persian Empire. Now, everything is fine probably for about the next five years, but there is a guy who rises in power, so much so that he becomes like, like the equivalent of like the vice president. He is the second most powerful man in the world, and his name is Haman. So powerful is he that King Xerxes, Ahasuerus, says, every time you see this man, you need to bow down. And everybody does, with one exception, a guy by the name of Mordecai. That is the guy who is adopted this orphan girl, Esther, raised her, now no longer has direct contact with her. Uh, Mordecai decides that he's not going to bow. He's, that's the line that he will not cross. So what happens? This guy, Haman, he's pretty full of himself. He is very egocentric. He doesn't like it when people don't bow. So he decides, I'm going to have you killed. Mordecai plays the Jewish card. He says, hey, I'm Jewish. I don't have to bow. And he goes, I don't care. In fact, I'll tell you what. Not only am I going to see that you're killed, 
I am going to find out a way to actually get you and all of your people, and there are about 15 million Jews living in the Persian Empire at this time, I'm going to have you exterminated. And he is able, through consulting with their gods, through casting lots, and also then going to the king himself and telling, you know, there's a group of people, but they don't really follow your laws, and, you know, it'd sure be nice if you got rid of them, because you never know what could happen. There's already been an assassination attempt on your life. You need everybody to conform, and I'll tell you what, do me this favor, I'll give you 10... 1,000 talents, or the equivalent of about $245 million, if you will just grant me the favor of eliminating these people. He doesn't even say they're Jewish people. He just says they're people that don't follow your laws. This is a win-win situation for you, king. You're going to be loaded. Your, your uh, treasury is depleted because of your lo- losses in war. I'll supply from the plunder that I take from these people everything that you need. The king hands off his signet ring, and with that, Everything is put in motion to exterminate the Jews about 11 months from here. Well, in Esther chapter 4, you remember that Mordecai is completely undone. He is weeping, he has torn his clothes, he's rolled in ashes, and he is now pleading with repentance. Let me tell you, if you want to find what renewal, spiritual renewal looks like in your lives, it always looks like brokenness before God. And all of a sudden, you see Mordecai completely broken and then. And he also then starts communicating via messengers with Esther that there is now a law that says that all Jews are going to be exterminated. And Esther, you are the only person that can actually take a stand and approach the king. She writes back and says, you may have forgotten something. The king has one law. If you approach the king uninvited, you immediately are assassinated. All those guys with the battle axes, the spears and the swords that are behind him, They don't ask questions. They treat any attempt as an assassination attempt. He's got one law. You've got to remember, I can't do this. He replies back with a message that says that God has raised you up for such a moment as this. You will not be spared. And consider this. God has raised you up. And with that, there is then the beginning of a renewal, a revival in her own life. And you see it at the end of chapter 4. She says, I want you to do this. I want you to fast for me. I'm going to disclose to my maidens, my attendants, that I am indeed Jewish. And I am going to fast with them. And we're going to seek the Lord that God might do only the work that he can do. And she says in verse 16, and if I perish, I perish. This isn't a resignation. This is a woman that is now operating on the principle of faith. Faith that God loves her even if she's been kind of like riding the fence. Even if she has been amalgamated into the culture and has not taken a stand, she's not where she should be. She is now resting in a confidence with God. And you find out that the focus of her heart now shapes the development of her life. And when you look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, you're going to see that Esther is learning to find her significance by trusting God. I would imagine chapter 5, verse 1, there's a lot of thoughts running through her mind. Like, this is the last time I will put this crown on. This is the last time I will wear the garments of a queen. She might even be contemplating that this is probably my final, final breath because I am going to approach the king unannounced. And so, after that third day, verse 1, now it came about on the third day, after that third day of fasting, that Esther put on her royal robes and she goes and she actually stands in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. 
Esther does the unthinkable. She actually makes entrance into the inner courts. The king is sitting on his throne. Immediately, the guards would be picking up their swords, and she is, she's going to probably face her demise. I mean, you find that this is, this is rather amazing, an amazing act of faith. To give you a little bit of parallel, it would be like the equivalent of, of you deciding, you know, I'm really gonna, I feel like I'd like to go see the president of the United States. You know, this is a free country. I'm one of the citizens. I pay taxes. I vote. I'm just going to hop over that little metal gate over there, and I'm going to make my way to the Oval Office, and I'm going to say hi to the president and check out and see how he's doing. If you think that that's a good idea, um, you will probably be able to touch the gate, but you might want to be really good at dodging bullets. There's snipers all over there, and they're, they aren't going to like, hey, what do you want? Are you a little confused? They're just going to shoot, and then they're going to try to figure it out afterwards. You don't approach the president, and you certainly aren't going to approach the king. And here she is. I'd imagine she is shaking, and she is fearful. But fear is no longer the dominant emotion and drive in her life. She is now operating on faith that I am trusting God, that even if I perish, he is the one who will carry me and see me through, that my life is more important than self-preservation. It is actually, it is for him and for his purposes. And so she has this tremendous act of faith. She goes, she's standing there. You can see, I mean, all of a sudden, I mean, everything that was happening is dropped. There is complete focus on her. And look at verse 2. When the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. The The word favor could literally be translated grace. If you want to see what wisdom looks like on display, you want to look at Esther. Notice that she dressed in her royal robes. She is dressing in the fullness of a queen. She is showing respect and deference to her husband that she hasn't even seen in 30 days. Now, don't get the idea that, well, you know, King Xerxes was probably really busy, you know, with uh, his missionary work. No, Uh uh-uh. He's probably been busy with his harem. He's probably been busy in matters either drinking and and kind of contemplating who he's going to fight next there's distance this isn't a great relationship but what she's doing is she's showing showing complete respect deference she handles herself well there is courage confidence character there is composure in this woman because this woman is no longer struggling with a dual identity she's aligned herself completely with god she has found her sense of significance in trusting him and so She sees the king. The king sees her. And notice what the king does, verse 2. The king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. And so that Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. That scepter is the only way that she could have her life spared. And so the king sees her. And he can't imagine what he's seeing. Why would she approach? Doesn't she know she's, she's looking to get herself killed doing this? He extends that scepter. And to show complete submission to the throne and to him you would touch the top of that scepter. And so she approaches. And notice what the king says in verse 3. Notice that she's already found grace. Verse 3, Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? And then he throws out something that was kind of like Near Eastern, uh, kind of way monarchs would express that they were very benevolent toward the person that's approaching them. He says, What's your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be given to you. Now, it isn't like he's ready to forfeit or hand over half the kingdom. It's the sign of saying, my heart is for you. What is it that I can do for you? And so he's asking this this question. What is it that you want? 
And then look at verse 4. I'm sure everybody that is shocked. You've got the cupbearer, all the attendants, all these soldiers. These guys holding on to their swords and their spears and their axes. And Esther then speaks. And she says, if it pleases the king. Do you, again, do you see the respect in her voice? May the king and Haman come this day to the banquet I have prepared for him. And what she's doing is she's following Near Eastern protocol of asking for something small first to moving up to something great that she has to ask. And she asks, I want you to come over for lunch. Okay? Now, I imagine they're totally thrown off. Why, why would you ask that? And yet, notice the composure that she has. She asks, if it pleases the king. She doesn't walk, put her hand on the hip, and then start yelling at him. She doesn't have, like, an emotional outburst. You know, like, like a little meltdown? I know that no, no one knows what I'm talking about here. But you know where you just literally, like, all of a sudden your just emotions take over, and you're like, ah! That guy over there, Haman, he's Hitler, and we're Jews, and he wants to kill us all, and you start just panicking and freaking out. You don't have any of that. There's a sense of composure and strength, a strength that comes from trusting in God and finding your significance in him. And so she, this isn't the right place or the right time to bring it up. She simply asks if the king and Haman will come to this banquet that she has prepared. Well, I'm sure the king had lunch plans, and he had ideas of what he was going to do, but he literally dropped them all. Look at verse 5. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly, that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. If you want to see God's sovereignty, even in the heart of a wicked king, all you have to do is look at the book of Esther. He can change the heart of a ruler at any time. Let me tell you, This guy, Ahasuerus, he is not a guy that would normally just get a lot of respect by how he behaves. But Esther shows it. She's got a confidence and a composure that comes from trusting God. So he gets Haman and says, quickly, we're going to go, and we go to this. So verse 6, they go to this banquet, and as they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? For it shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. That was probably one of his favorite phrases when he was pretty happy. And so he's, he's saying, listen, I'm going to do whatever you want. And, and like, man, Haman's sitting there. Now, don't get the idea that Haman is sitting at the same level. Protocol would call for that he is, he's sitting in a, in a place of submission. Now, Haman is probably just thinking, this is probably the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. But he's sitting at a place of submission, and he hears this, and everybody's just on the edge of their seat. What in the world did you risk your life for? Certainly it wasn't to have us over for lunch. What do you want? And then she replies, verse 7, My petition and my request is, yes! And so if I have found favor or grace in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition, and do what I request. I mean, you can't just see like, come on, come on, what is it that you want? May the king and Haman come to the banquet, which will, I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. I want you to come over for lunch tomorrow. That's my big request. What? Well, the king obviously is going to, he agrees to this. And once again, you see God moving. He's, he's moving in their midst because the king, instead of just going, I'm not used to being put on hold. I'm, I'm used to, to asking once and things happen. And yet, you see what Esther's doing? There's tension in this relationship. I mean, there's been a 30-day gap. And what she's doing is she's building the relationship. 
she is expressing the fact that she wants something more than just be this kind of closet queen. And so he said, she invites him again, I want you to come. I want you to come and enjoy another banquet with me, and then I'm going to tell you. And you see, she's not working for her identity. Now she's working out of her identity. She knows who she is. She understands that she is treasured and valued by God even if she's been following at a distance. There's been a revival in her heart. This isn't our, the same girl. She recognizes that God's going to be her help. Her confidence is in Him. And when you find that you are trusting God, and, you're, and you literally are, are doing so with no strings attached, that you've got a courage and a composure that can only be described as coming from Him. When you can look at Esther, you're seeing that she's learning to find her significance in trusting God. But there's, there's this another guy, this Haman. He's going on a completely different trajectory. He's very much in the scene, but he's got a completely different focus in his heart. For Haman, he's searching for significance by trusting in his idols. Now, I would imagine that Haman thinks he's probably living the greatest day in his life. Look at verse 9. Well, after this, then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. I mean, can't you just see him strutting? I mean, he walked, when he walked out of this banquet, man, he is singing songs. He is beaming. His shoulders are thrown back. He is feeling like, man, I am, I am about as good as it gets. I, I not only have the king's favor, now Esther, the queen, wants me to be like an advisor. She's having me sit in on their intimate conversations. It would be kind of like the equivalent if like the president of the United States calls you up. And you're at home this afternoon, and they, he says, you know, I'd like you to come over for dinner. And you're like, are you having like just like a major event that you're inviting everybody? No, it's actually me and the first lady. We would just like to have you over. Can you come? You're like, oh, yeah, and you would come. I mean, that would be like amazing, right? And you'd be taking pictures. It would be on Instagram. That would be your Christmas card, man. Here I am, just kind of hanging out at the White House. It's just something I did this year because it would be an amazing privilege. Haman is completely overwhelmed by just how good life is. And yet, we haven't finished the sentence because Haman saw verse 9. Oh, man, not this guy again. Mordecai. And there he is at the king's gate. And notice this. That he did not stand up or tremble before him. Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. I mean, this guy is totally up and down. He's elated one moment. He's filled with joy. The next minute... There's Mordecai, and he is not standing up, showing deference, showing respect, kissing the floor, bowing down a hundred times. I mean, you think if you're Mordecai, you might want to, like, make up for some lost bows, okay? I mean, you have really done yourself in and all of your people because of your arrogance. He does none of it. And so in the same sentence, all of a sudden, he's filled with anger against Mordecai. I mean, this guy is all over the map emotionally. And then notice verse 10. This is, this is almost hilarious. Haman controlled himself. Now, he's infuriated. Remember when this happened in Esther chapter 3, verse 5, when Mordecai didn't bow down? It says he's literally filled with rage. So I don't know if he's physically trying to hold himself and control himself. as He's, he's angry. I mean, he's all over his face. I don't know if he wants to just, just attack him and beat on him right now. But he's holding it all in. He's trying to control himself. And he's like, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm just getting out of here. And so he does. Verse 10. However, he went to his house, and he's going to have a remedy for his situation. He sent for his friends. And his wife, Zeresh. Okay, so Haman marries the woman whose name could be translated as gold. Okay? 
he married the golden gal. I mean, she is gold, okay? So he married this wonderful gal. Her name's Gold, and he's got a bunch of friends. And you're going to find out that Haman's a real smart guy. You know you're real smart when all of your friends just agree with you, okay? That's, that's a joke, by the way, okay? All right, and he's going to have them over. And what do you do if you're really a very insecure person? Well, you need others to identify with your privilege and how good you are. You need to hear it from others. I mean, think of it. Haman is the second most powerful guy in the empire, but he is drastically insecure. And so he's going to have a let's talk about me party. I I just want you to, again, rehearse with me just how great I am. And so he invites his, his friends over. He's got his wife. There's gold, man. She's looking as good as ever. And then verse 11, then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches. He just starts going through all the wealth that he has and the number of his sons. Okay, this is significant. I mean, all dads like to talk about their kids, but a Persian dad, the second most powerful way that you could show your manliness is that if you had a lot of sons. In fact, Persian kings gave the father that had the most sons a lot of gifts. Okay, it was something highly valued in their culture. The only other way that you could actually establish even more the fact that you're quite the man is some sort of military valor. And so he's rehearsing that all of my sons, in chapter 9 we find out that he has 10 of them. And then he says, and every instance where the king had magnified him, every time the king had lifted him up, said something good about him, he's rehearsing. You all remember this? I mean, I'm sure they've heard those stories before. By the way, don't you just love people that love to talk about themselves? I mean, aren't they great, like in the break room, Right? Or, you know, or maybe you're related to one, or you got one in the neighborhood, and like some of your family gatherings, like, oh, no, you know, this guy just goes on and on and on, and it's all about him. That's Haman. Every time the king magnified him, he's rehearsed it, man. He's got it down. Oh, you remember that? And here goes another story. And, oh, yeah, one of the greatest ones of all, how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Remember that? And... And then he says, oh, and then once he tells him about that, remember how I'm the number two guy? And then verse 12, Haman also said, and oh man, look at this. Even Esther the queen sees how great I am. And she let no one but me come with the king to the banquet, which she had prepared. And guess what? Tomorrow also I'm invited by her with the king. He's having another party. And she's, ha- she's having this party, and guess what? I'm invited again. You know why? It's because... I'm so great. But friends, I want you to see something. This next verse is so profound because it actually cuts right down to the issue. He's got everything the world can offer. And yet he says, verse 13, yet all this does not satisfy me. He has it all and he says, but it doesn't satisfy Every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, it's a reminder that something drastically is missing in my life. Let me just tell you about Haman. Haman found his identity, his sense of well-being, his search for significance in his possessions, in his progeny, his number of children, his kids, his promotions, and his privileges. But he never found real peace or happiness. Do you know that apart from knowing and trusting the living God, those things, and guess what? That's all good. There's nothing wrong with any of that. It's just meant that apart from God, those things can never satisfy. You see, 
what Haman is, Haman thinks he's a leader, but really he's an idolater. Idolatry is this. It is putting a person, a position, or any possession in the place of God. It's putting a, a person, a position, any of your possessions in the place of God. That's what he's doing. It's what his world calls for, and he's got success at every level. And even on the testimony of his own words, he says, but this does not satisfy me. He's bothered by the fact that one Jewish guy doesn't bow down. And so listen to this, verse 14. His wife, Gold, and all of his friends, man, they, like, they, we can help you. They say, verse 14, they said to him, you know what you just need to do? You just need to eliminate the one thing that's grieving you. So have a gallows 50 cubits high. That's, that is 75 feet. That is almost as tall as an eight-story building. Have a gallows made 50 cubits high, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it, and then go joyfully. If you will eliminate your problem, you can have real joy, right? That's what the philosophy back then is. That's what it is today. And you can go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And guess what? Haman says, you know, that sounds pretty good. And the advice pleased Haman. So he had the gallows made. Now, it's likely, you remember, they didn't hang people with ropes. They impaled them on these pikes. And they just kind of rested them up there. It would be a very brutal way of dying. That's what he's doing. He probably is going to put him on a hill so that everyone can see that Mordecai's wrong and Haman is great. That's what he wants to do here. Now, What's taking place here with Haman is that he thinks that these idols in his life can satisfy him. You see, when his idols are fed, you're really great. You get to spend time with the king and the queen. You got select a private party. When his idols are fed, he's really happy, right? And when his idols are being assaulted, like someone doesn't bow down to him, he gets violent and angry. That's because he is searching for significance in things that can never give it. Now, let me just talk a little bit about searching for significance. It's, there's nothing wrong for doing so. In fact, all of us want our lives to matter. We want meaning. Now, as people, all of us do this. Your pets. Your pets are not running around your house right now in search for significance. They're not like wondering, like, what is the meaning of my life? You know, they don't, they don't think that way. They're not like wondering, like, what, is, what matters in my life? How do, what makes me significant? They, they never think that way. People, on the other hand, we do. We have this longing, and it describes behavior at, at so many levels for every person. They're searching for significance. And Larry Crabb, who's done quite a bit of writing on this, uh, it talks about how we do this. What happens is we search for significance, and we make assumptions based upon our culture, and our environment. What does our culture say matters? What is valued in our environment? And that starts dictating what we live for, what we're going after. And so culture and environment shape us. And Larry Crabb says, if you're focused on being happy, you will actually never be happy. If that is your driving focus, I just want to be a happy person, and you're looking at the culture that says, what, this is what it takes to be happy. And let me assure you, you turn on the TV today, they're going to tell you what the world says, how to be happy. Our culture has a way of shaping it. And he gives some common false assumptions. Like, for instance, we think, I will be significant if I have money, I excel, 
I never make a mistake. I'm a steady worker. My kids turn out well. I am granted recognition by my peer group. I'm included in important circles. He also says that we make the false assumption that I will be secure if I have a loving spouse. I am never criticized. Everyone accepts me. No one frowns or hollers or in some way rejects me. And what happens is, as people, we start searching for significance in the things that can't really give it to us. So let me give you some other examples. So, for instance, you see this, even starting with like, like junior high girls, high school girls, some college girls, not all of them, but some of them, they believe that the value is that it, you have significance if you've got another male showing you attention. Or in some cases, lots of males showing you attention. But that is the value. And you can feel good about yourself if you've got that. And so what you find is you have some girls and that they always have to have a boyfriend. And they'll do whatever it takes to keep that kind of attention upon themselves because they think this is where my value comes from. They are even willing to compromise and do things that they know are wrong, but they believe because they think that's where significance is found. And if I've got these males or this male showing me this attention, I must be valuable. And they yearn for it. And they'll do things that they, shouldn't, they think they would never do. They'll even be trampled upon. But they think that's where they'll find true fulfillment and meaning, satisfaction, and identity. And it leaves them crushed. Or you find some folks that they perhaps grew up at home that it's all about hard work and success. And man, if you really work hard and you are successful, then your life matters. There's nothing wrong with hard work and there is nothing wrong with success. But when you take that to a level that it was never meant to be, when you put it on steroids, what happens is you are so driven to have success and through your work that you are literally jettisoning things like family, spiritual life. Now, of course, you're going to try to keep the balls like I got to keep my family going or something like that. But you are all focused and your idol of success and hard work and being valued in the workplace and the money that provides. It drives your behavior and it leaves you feeling crushingly empty. And there's only, there's only two things that could happen when you seek after the idols of this world. You'll either actually attain them and you find out how empty they are. Like, I, what do you mean? I got that gal to marry me or I made that money or I, I, I finally reached this position. I am finally the president of the company or I'm the CEO or whatever. And I'm like, ah, I hate it. And I feel empty. In fact, I feel worse than I've ever felt. Why? You'll, because idols leave you wanting. Or the other thing is, you're trying to get there and you're blocked. And what happens is, if you feel like you're blocked, then anger, resentment, guilt, and anxiety, they set in. And you're like, ah, if I could just get this, or if I could just have her, or if I could just do this, or I had this kind of money, or I lived in this kind of house, or people showed me the kind of respect, and you're yearning for it, and yet you're blocked by it, whatever that might be, and you feel anger and anxiety, resentment, and guilt. And let me tell you where this kind of shows up. Like some parents... They actually try to find their success and their identity and significance in their kids. Okay? And so they think like, man, my kid, he's going to be like the next athlete, you know, like the next pro football player, pro basketball player. But then they find out that, mm, you know, my son is not getting past 5'2". Ooh, this is not working. So then, well, we'll try academics, right? And then, well, that, man, I don't think he's going to be the next Rhodes Scholar. And then, well, well, you know, we'll try music, right? And we have this idea as parents, and this has really become very prevalent in our culture, that we've got to find something that our kids are really awesome at, right? And so we'll try then music, but ew, they play and it's bad, man. 
all these expensive lessons. They're not, they're not equating to anything. Well, no, we'll help them be like really social, man. We'll, they'll be like the life of the party. And, but that's not working. And I, I heard one pastor say, if you tried all those things, then that probably what you need to do is then see if you could be a good pastor. Can't do anything else, you know. So try to do that. And you're always looking for something. And so what we do is we try to impose this on our kids. And what we're doing in a very subtle way is we're saying your value is tied into what you do. And we're trying to find this for you. And not only are they crushed, but you're crushed because you're trying to build value on idols. And you will never find significance. And you are creating a whole sort of set of havoc and confusion in the lives of your kids because they think that this is how I have value is if I'm pretty or if I've got a lot of money or people like me or I'm good at this, this, or this. And what happens if, what happens if you're average? Did you know that 50% of all children are below average? Do you know that? Some of you are like, what, what are you talking about? Unless you live in Lake Wobegon where all the kids are above average, 50% of all kids are below average. What are you doing to your kids? when you're imposing the world's values on them and saying these are the idols that you need to attain so that you have significance. You are setting them up for cataclysmic failure. Haman, he knows all about that. And the problem is, is that we're focusing on behavior, not on the heart. We're focusing on behavior, not on the heart. Let me help you Identify if you've got some idolatry that's kind of creeped into your search for significance. What makes you angry or frustrated or depressed? What is it? What makes you overjoyed? Well, all you have to do is look at Haman in verse 9. He's overjoyed in one half of the sentence. He's ripping it apart, frustrated in the other half. Because his idols are being identified. What are they for you? You see, the problem is, we are not addressing it at a heart level. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says this, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. What is it that you are putting in here that you're seeking after? Where do you find your significance? And what you want to know is that significance is found in someone that is unchanging, that is real, that is substantial. In fact, if you're looking for real significance, you're going to find that significance really lies when you're at rest with the fact that God loves you unconditionally. That you are a child of the King. That your sins have been paid for. And even if you have been complacent, even if you've been kind of cool and following you at a distance in your walk with God, that there is a God who loves you tremendously. He's the God that Esther is really realizing that even in the midst of my failures, I'm still loved and cherished by God. And once you come to a place where you're at rest with God, then you start living out your identity. You don't work for it. And there's something about us that we are all about a works-based salvation. We think that if we do things, God will be happy with us. That's because we're, we're kind of we almost take things like reading the Bible and we turn it into an idol. If I read the Bible, then God will be happy with me. Anybody think like that? I can tell you a lot of Christians do. But in reality, you know why we read the Bible and pray? We read the Bible and pray because we are so prone to forget of God's great love for us in Christ. Remember the gospel. Jesus paid it all. 
He completed what we could never complete. He lived a righteous life. He has forgiven us our sins. He has united us forever, and we will be with him for eternity. And we will always see the joy of knowing Christ in our life when we're at rest with the reality that he loves me. Oh, how he loves me. And that's where you and I are going to find our identity and security. And so if you lose your job, if you're a Christian that is resting in this truth, it isn't the end of your world. It's difficult, but it's not the end. If you are, uh, let's say, in a, in a significant relationship, or you're married, but then all of a sudden you sense there's some distance, you're not decimated because your ultimate significance is resting where? In the living God. Now, relationships, money, uh, position, status, influence, you know what, friends? Those are all good things. This is the problem. Uh, there's a biblical counsel by the name of David Paulson, and he, he put it really succinctly. He said this. What happens is we take good things and we make them God things. We take good things and we make them God things. And when you do that, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, idolatry is influencing your search for significance, and ultimately it leads to frustration, depression, anger, because idols were never meant to satisfy. If you're looking for your search for significance, let me ask you, are you like Haman and trying to find it in your possessions, your progeny, your kids, your promotions, or your privilege? You see, apart from knowing and trusting the living God, those things will never satisfy. But we, what we do is we keep searching for significance until we find the significance of being known and loved by God. Friends, this is why you're here this morning. To stop searching for significance in the things of this world, but to find it in God who loves you immensely, despite all of your failures and my failures, my shortcomings. I can rejoice and rest in Him, and that changes my life. That gives me gravitas. That gives me confidence, courage, calmness, composure. I'm like, more like Esther in that respect. You see, until we see our true worth in God's eyes, we'll never know our true worth. That's why John wrote at the very end of 1 John, he said, little children, guard yourself from idols. Because idols always destroy and they always mislead, especially in the search for significance. Friends, the focus of your hearts, they're going to shape the development of your lives. We find our significance in knowing and trusting the living God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an amazing chapter of the Bible. Two case studies of searching for significance. One finding and trusting you, the other finding it and trusting in idols. And God, you know our hearts, and you know the propensity there is in us to want to find our identity and sense of security and peace in the things of this world. And yet, they leave us so empty because we were made for you. So, Father, right now, we, we trust Jesus and we realize that our hope and our security, our identity, is found in knowing you. Wean us off the things of this world that we might know the greatness of being loved by Christ and trusting in you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we kind of close the service here, one of the things we wanted to do uh, this morning is just give you kind of a brief uh, financial update.
we wanted just to make sure that everybody knows where we're at on a somewhat regular basis going on in finances. And so I just kind of want to give you just a brief report. Uh, first of all, we had told you in midsummer that we are starting to run behind uh, in our general fund. Uh, we have a monthly giving goal of $70,465. Uh, I just want to tell you, thank you and praise God because uh, giving toward our general fund has made a significant stride forward. Uh, as of the end of September, uh, we are averaging $72,888, just part of our general fund giving. You know, like uh, whether you're giving just in a general offering or you can send it in the church or we can give online. I just want to tell you, thank you so much. We just made one announcement and uh, people said I just needed to be informed and uh, that has happened. So thank you very much. Then just on to our capital fund. Uh, I think uh, many of you know this, unless you're new here, that we are saving and trying to save aggressively so that we can take next, the next step in terms of our campus development. So we're praying, we're saving, and we are giving to our capital fund. And let me just, here's a couple pictures in case you're unfamiliar with that. Uh, this is kind of what that elevation would look like. So you see our current building to the left, and then this is a layout of what that will look like in terms of a floor plan. This is a kind of a tentative idea. We did this so we could kind of get a price tag on what that would look like. And so... We have for this year, for 2013, we had a capital fund goal of $250,000. So on top of a general fund, uh, where it's just kind of our monthly operating expenses, we have a capital fund. Uh, our goal is for this year, 2013, is $250,000. Uh, as of the end of September, we have $161,000 uh, given just to capital fund. Now, let me tell you something else about this capital fund here. Uh, what we do... We actually, we're like a family that's saving to buy a car, okay? So, you know, like if you're a family and you want to buy a car, you can save money so that you eventually can buy the car and you can pay cash for it. Well, we, with that kind of idea, we are also saving money. So $11,600 of our general fund, we actually save and we put in our capital fund. We do that every single month. And so just from year to date, uh, you could just do the math, but we've saved $104,400 just from taking money from our general fund that we give each month and putting it also in our capital fund. So let me just uh, refresh your memory. We were trying to reach $2.3 million of an estimated $3.3 million project, okay? So that's what we're trying to move toward. And if you want to know what is kind of the status of our capital fund, let me give you a number from last year, July of 2012 we had $1,067,000 that had been saved up, okay? If you're wondering, we have a 50-acre campus, and by God's grace, we've paid all that off. All the buildings are all paid off. Uh, last year at that time, we saved one million sixty-seven. As of September of 2013, as you can see there, we now have $1,528,000 to the glory of God. I just, I'm just astounded how God is, continues to move in, in our midst in so many different ways, including our finance. All that to say, we want to say, Thank you for your faithful giving. This is awesome that God has put us in a situation and that hearts are moved like this. Uh, you remember that we began this year with a goal that every believer giving generously. Every person that's a part of fellowship, we want them to experience the joy of giving and being in this together as we see what God is going to continue to do in our church. So we have this goal of every believer giving generously, and I just want to thank you for your generous giving to the Lord. It's, it has been tremendous. We're just starting our fourth quarter. Uh, we believe God has got significant plans for our church. Look what's already taking place. I just want to thank you 
Thank you for being so faithful, generous, regular in your giving. It's making a significant difference.